Well, good morning. Welcome to the Cato Institute and to our brand new F.A. Hayek Auditorium. Um, I'm Roger Pilon. I'm the director of Cato's Center for Constitutional Studies and your host for today's conference. Uh, I also want to welcome our C-SPAN audience. Um, we've got a full program for you reviewing the most important decisions from the Supreme Court's last term, along with the cases coming up and concluding with our 11th annual B. Kenneth Simon Lecture, delivered this year by former Solicitor General Paul Clement, today one of the nation's leading Supreme Court litigators. Uh, for a still fuller uh, discussion, uh, you can, of course, turn to uh, Ilya the um, Cato Supreme Court Review, which came out late yesterday and which you picked up on your way in. And those of you who are seeing us on C-SPAN can get your own copy simply by going to uh, cato.org. Um, this year, we marked the 225th anniversary of the day in 1787 that the framers concluded their work in Philadelphia, sending the document out to the states for ratification. Reflecting the vision uh, of liberty through limited government that uh, the founders had set forth 11 years earlier in the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution sought to establish a more perfect union toward that end. Much has happened in the ensuing 225 years, of course, some of, it not, uh, some of it good, such as the completion of the Constitution through the Civil War amendments, some of it extraordinarily problematic, such as the major revisions of the document that took place during the New Deal, all without benefit of constitutional amendment, and all uh, undermining liberty through limited government. Indeed, the critique that constitutional inversion has animated the work of Cato's Center for Constitutional Studies, and it will be a constant throughout today's program. To give you an overview of the program, uh, I'm going to introduce the man who's primarily responsible for putting it together and for editing the Cato Supreme Court review that you have in your hands. Uh, Ilya Shapiro is a senior fellow in constitutional studies at the Cato Institute, uh, the editor-in-chief of the Cato Supreme Court review, and the coordinator of Cato's growing amicus brief program. He's a graduate of the college at Princeton University, the London School of Economics, where he did a master's degree, and the University of Chicago Law School, after which he clerked for Judge E. Grady Jolie of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. He practiced law in New York with Cleary Gottlieb and in Washington with Patton Boggs, uh, before joining Cato, Ilya was a special assistant advisor to the multinational force in Iraq on rule of law issues. He's published widely and is a frequent guest on radio and TV, and he lectures at law schools across the country. I'll now turn the program over to him and return after lunch to moderate our second panel. Please welcome Ilya Shapiro. Thank you, Roger. Uh, every year uh, at this time on this day, uh, I'm ever so thankful to Roger for uh, plucking me out of the, the big law treadmill so I can do um, more interesting uh, and hopefully more meaningful work here. Uh, welcome to our 11th annual Constitution Day conference, where we also release uh, the Supreme Court review, the nation's first in-depth review of the most recent Supreme Court term. 
We hold this conference every year on Constitution Day, though this year we pushed it back a day uh, to uh, accommodate Rosh Hashanah, about two and a half months after the previous term concludes and two weeks before the next one begins. We're proud of the speed with which we publish this tome, Authors of articles, uh, as all the gentlemen here know, uh, about the last decided cases have no more than a month to provide us full drafts and of its accessibility, at least insofar as the court's opinions allow for that. This isn't a typical law review, after all, whose prolix submissions use more space for footnotes uh, and uh, abstruse text than anything else. Instead, this is a book of articles about law intended for everyone from lawyers and judges to educated uh, laymen and interested citizens. We run a tight ship. You have the schedules in your packets, uh, both due to uh, the demands of C-SPAN and our own internal organization. We start uh, and finish on time without waiting for anyone, including uh, the breaks. Um, I want to thank David Lampo and the publications team uh, for their uh, help uh, on, the, on the volume. Linda Asu and the conference team, who you'll see flitting about all day today. None of this would be possible without them. The uh, interns and associates, who also will be, you'll, you'll see them. Um, and John Blanks, most importantly. John, I hope you're uh, listening outside, because uh, I certainly could not do uh, half of my work without uh, him being able to keep the trains running on time, and more importantly, me running uh, somewhat close to on time. I reiterate our hope that this collection of essays will secure and advance the Madisonian first principles of our Constitution, giving renewed voice to the framers' fervent wish that we have a government of laws and not of men, and that that also applies to the Chief Justice. In so doing, we hope also to do justice to a rich legal tradition in which judges, politicians, and ordinary citizens alike understand that the Constitution reflects and protects the natural rights of life, liberty, and property, and serves as a bulwark against the abuse of government power. In these uncertain times, when both the legal and political processes seem unable to rein in the largely unconstitutional growth of government, it's more important than ever to remember our proud roots in the Enlightenment tradition. Now, we begin this conference as we began the new review with a look at the case that consumed most of the public debate about the court and the Constitution this past year. I refer, of course, to NFIB versus Sebelius which will in time likely be known as the health care cases, a ruling that has already gained as much infamy among those who believe that the Constitution means what it says as the slaughterhouse cases, and it will spark similar debate about whether health care should be one word or two hyphenated or not. <laughs> Look, there's a word for people who accurately predicted that the court would uphold the individual mandate by a 5-4 vote with the Chief Justice uh, writing the the majority opinion, and Justice Kennedy in fervent dissent. That word is liars. There's also a word, actually two, for those who additionally predicted that the mandate would be upheld as an exercise of the taxing power. Damn liars. <laughs> There's even a word for those who predicted that the court would nonetheless hold that the mandate was invalid as an exercise of the commerce power and, by a 7-2 to two vote, hold that the Medicaid expansion was impermissibly coercive. I guess we're left with statisticians. If you like that joke, good. If not, I stole it from John Elwood, who's on a panel later today, so you can talk to him. <laughs> Having filed ten amicus briefs, four in the Supreme Court, written dozens of articles and blog posts, engaged in more than a hundred debates and other public events about the constitutionality of Obamacare, and sat through all 87,000 hours of oral argument, I thought I knew what to expect from this case. 
I was nevertheless gobsmacked as I sat there in the courtroom that morning and heard the Chief Justice hand the government a bottom-line victory, while neither expanding federal regulatory authority nor dismissing the case on some technical ground. I never thought I could feel so empty, and, and still do, after having court majorities offer such ringing endorsements of my theories, and not mine alone, uh, on the Commerce Clause, Necessary and Proper Clause, and Spending Clause. What had I and everyone else missed? Well, I have my ideas, but I'll defer to our distinguished panel for now. The panelists need no introduction to those who followed the case, but I'll provide brief intros for the benefit of law professors who still aren't sure what the fuss is about. Randy Barnett, whom the New York Times called the intellectual godfather behind the Obamacare lawsuits, is the Carmack Waterhouse Professor of Legal Theory at the Georgetown University Law Center, where he teaches constitutional law and contracts. Randy was co-counsel to the plaintiffs in NFIB versus Sebelius and argued the previous big Commerce Clause case, Gonzalez versus Raich. He's also the author of what I think is the best book on what's gone wrong with constitutional law and how it can be fixed, restoring the lost Constitution. Next, we'll have David Rivkin, a partner at Baker Hostetler and co-chair of the firm's appellate practice, who also represented the Obamacare plaintiffs. In addition to his distinguished litigation career, David has served in various capacities in the federal government, including as legal advisor to Vice President George H.W. Bush and deputy director of the Office of Policy Development at the Department of Justice. You no doubt know David best from the daily op-eds he publishes in the Wall Street Journal, and he also co-authored the lead article in this year's review, offering an assessment of the ruling that is much more dispassionate than I can muster. Finally, Jim Blumstein is one of 13 university professors at Vanderbilt University, the first ever awarded that title in the law school and the first to receive a second tenured appointment in the medical school. So I guess we have a doctor in the house. Uh, Jim will tell us why the court adopted the spending clause theory that he presented in his amicus brief. As he says to begin his review article, NFIB went a long way toward clarifying how the federal-state relationship should be conceptualized and establishing that the power of the federal government's spending power is circumscribed in a judicially enforceable manner when the government substantially and unforeseeably modifies the terms and conditions of a major pre-existing and ongoing spending program. Randy. Well, thank you, Ilya, uh, for uh, inviting me here, and thanks to the Cato Institute for having me. I always enjoy being here. Uh, the legal challenge to the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, commonly known as Obamacare, which I advocated as a law professor before representing the National Federation of Independent Businesses, one of its lawyers, was about two huge things, saving the country from Obamacare and saving the Constitution for the country. To my great disappointment, we lost the first point in the Supreme Court's 5-4 to four ruling to uphold the Health Care Act. But to my enormous relief, we won the second. Before the decision, I figured that it was all or nothing. If we lost on Obamacare, it would mean that the government and law professors' reading of the Commerce and Necessary and Proper Clauses would have prevailed. If we won, it would be because our theories of the Commerce and Necessary and Proper Clauses had been affirmed by the court. But as it happened, Although we did not succeed in invalidating Obamacare, our view of the Commerce and Necessary and Proper Clauses were affirmed by five justices. If before the case was decided you had put a gun to my head and mandated that I choose one of these outcomes over the other, I believe I would have picked the Constitution. Obamacare can still be reversed politically, thanks in part to the delay in much of its implementation to 2014 
uh, due to the desire to spread six years of cost over a 10-year budget window, and in part to our lawsuit, which kept the law in legitimacy limbo for over two years. Adding constitutional concerns to the concerns over policy helped contribute to Obamacare's consistent unpopularity. Our lawsuit helped make the Affordable Care Act a centerpiece of the election of 2010, turning control over the House of Representatives to Republicans. It remains a prominent issue in the presidential campaign of 2012, with one candidate very publicly pledged to its repeal. We will soon know whether the 2012 election will correct this grave policy mistake. But had Obamacare been upheld for the reasons expressed by the government, by most law professors, and by the four liberal justices, the damage to the Constitution might never have been corrected. So the question, who won the case, is actually a complicated one to answer, as it depends as much on what might have been decided as opposed to what actually was. It depends on what you think the constitutional law baseline was before the decision, and it depends on how much you think constitutional law doctrine actually matters. So let me briefly examine these issues before turning my attention to what the decision may augur for the future. This battle for the Constitution was forced upon defenders of limited government in 2010 when the Democrats in Congress insisted in the health care bill that it was constitutional to require all Americans to purchase insurance or pay a fine as a regulation of interstate commerce. Had we not contested this power grab, Congress's regulatory powers would have been rendered limitless. They are not. On that point, we prevailed completely. Indeed, the case has put us ahead of where we were before Obamacare. Five justices of the Supreme Court have now definitively ruled that the Commerce Clause, Necessary and Proper Clause, and spending power have limits, that the mandate to purchase private health insurance, as well as the threat to withhold Medicaid funding unless states agree to expand their coverage, exceeds those limits, and that the court will enforce these limits. This was huge. On the Commerce Clause, Chief Justice Roberts and four dissenting justices accepted all of our side's arguments about why the insurance mandate exceeded Congress's power. Quote, the individual mandate cannot be upheld as an exercise of Congress's power under the Commerce Clause, Roberts wrote. Quote, that clause authorizes Congress to regulate interstate commerce, not to order individuals to engage in it, unquote. Roberts adopted this view for the precise reason we advanced. Granting Congress this power would gravely limit the liberties of the people. As he put it, quote, allowing Congress to justify federal regulation by pointing to the effect of inaction on commerce would bring countless decisions an individual could potentially make within the scope of federal regulation and under the government's theory, empower Congress to make those decisions for him, unquote. <clears throat> Supporters of the health care law overhaul had invoked the power of Congress to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution the foregoing powers, seeing it as a constitutional carte blanche to adopt any means to facilitate the regulation of insurance companies that did not violate an express constitutional prohibition. Roberts squarely rejected this argument, quote, even if the individual mandate is necessary to the act's insurance reforms, such an expansion of federal power is not a proper means for making these reforms effective, unquote. Tellingly, he did not rest this finding of impropriety on any express prohibition in the Constitution, but on the threat of this invocation of power to undermine the enumerated power scheme that is, in, that is the federalist spirit of the Constitution, to quote from McCulloch versus, Mar um, McCulloch versus Maryland. As Justice Roberts concluded, applying these principles of, to McCull of McCulloch versus Maryland, the individual mandate cannot be sustained under the Necessary and Proper Clause as an essential component of the insurance reforms. 
For these reasons, the court held that economic mandates are unconstitutional under both the commerce and necessary and proper clauses. And yes, this was the holding of the court. In part 3C of his opinion, which was joined without dissent by the four liberal justices, Chief, uh, Chief Justice writes, quote, the court today holds that our Constitution protects us from federal regulation under the Commerce Clause so long as we abstain from the regulated activity, unquote. Why the liberals concurred in this holding is a matter of the same sort of speculation that attends Chief Justice Roberts' reported switch in time to save Obamacare. But vote for it, they did. Of course, we, are now, we will now hear hyper-formalist accounts of the holding dictum distinction from those who normally are against formalism. They will tell us that the courts cannot dictate the holding of the case by what they say. But however true this may be, that is not all that establishes this as the rule of the case. Contrary to the assertion that Chief Justice Roberts did not need to reach the Commerce Clause issue, on his reasoning, he clearly did. The opinion of the fifth vote of the fifth justice not only held that the penalty could be justified as a tax, it also held that this was only so under a saving construction that eliminated the legal requirement to buy health insurance and replaced it with an option to buy insurance or pay the tax. Quote, while the individual mandate clearly aims to induce the purchase of health insurance, it need not be read to declare that failing to do so is unlawful. Neither the act nor any other law attaches negative legal consequences to not buying health insurance beyond requiring a payment to the IRS. The government agrees with that reading, confirming that if someone cho chose to pay rather than obtain health insurance, they have fully complied with the law. The fifth vote to uphold the rest of the Affordable Care Act rested upon this rationale, every bit as much as Justice Powell's fifth vote in the Bakke case rested on the diversity rationale. As he wrote himself, Chief Justice Roberts said, without deciding the Commerce Clause question, I would find no basis to adopt such a saving construction of the penalty. The fact that the four dissenting conservative justices failed to formally join Chief Justice Roberts' opinion or even mention it does not entail that his reasoning is mere dictum. If it did, then his ruling that conditioning all Medicaid funding on the states accepting Obamacare's expansion of the program was unconstitutional would also be dictum. After all, no other justice formally joined him on this aspect of his ruling either. Yet no one denies that that's the legal effect of this case. Why? Because it was the reasoning of the fifth swing vote. But in addition to set, uh, 3C and the logic, part 3C of the opinion and the logic of the opinion of the fifth justice uh, to uphold Obamacare, providing a formalist justification for this being the holding, we also have the realist fact that five justices embraced the entirety of our Commerce Clause and Necessary and Proper Clause argument. Critics like Charles Freed can dismiss this as emanating from the leaderless Tea Party all they like, but it is now embraced by what's called the rule of five. And even if the Tea Party played a role, we have long been told that this is how the living constitution, which by, the, by which is meant constitutional doctrine, evolves in response to social movements. So unless it is a living constitutionalism for me, but not for thee, if the outcome of this case was indeed impelled by popular constitutionalism, that would make it more, not less legitimate on living constitutionalist grounds. As for the spending power, which Jim is gonna talk about, while the court has previously invalidated statutes that exceeded the Commerce Clause, not since the New Deal had it rejected a law for exceeding the spending power of Congress until NFIB versus Sebelius. The court invalidated the part of the Affordable Care Act that empowered the Department of Health and Human Services to coerce the states by withholding Medicaid funding 
for existing programs unless the states accepted new coverage requirements. All of this represents a fundamental departure from how most law professors viewed constitutional law before this decision. So if we prevailed on all our arguments about economic mandates, how could Obamacare have been upheld? Well, some have claimed that the Chief Justice upheld the power to impose economic mandates under the tax power and thus rendered the Commerce and Necessary and Proper Clause part of his analysis superfluous and without practical effect. As Justice Alito once responded, however, this is not true. Chief Justice Roberts, I know, as I noted above, upheld Obamacare by rewriting the law's individual responsibility requirements so that it was no longer a mandate, but merely an option to get insurance or pay, pay a mild tax penalty. Contrary to the statute, he ruled that anyone who did not have to pay the penalty would have no legal duty to get insurance. Quote, the federal government does not have the power to order people to buy health insurance. Section 5000A would therefore be unconstitutional if read as a command, unquote. Moreover, he noted, quote, the statute reads more naturally as a command to buy insurance than as a tax. Therefore, it is because he does away with the mandate by means of a saving construction that Roberts finds the penalty to be constitutional as a tax. Apparently, this is a difficult legal distinction to grasp, but one that I think matters nonetheless. So let me say this again in a different way. In Obamacare, the mandate was called an individual responsibility requirement. To save the rest of Obamacare, the Chief Justice essentially deleted the requirement part so that the mandate qua mandate is gone. What is left is a tax. What's the difference? Under Obamacare, as enacted, all Americans who are not exempted had to buy health insurance. Under the Supreme Court ruling, no American has to buy health insurance, though some Americans will pay a tax if they don't. Under Obamacare, millions of Americans who did not have to pay the penalty because they don't pay enough income taxes were still required by law to get insurance or be a lawbreaker. Under, Obamacare, uh, under the Supreme Court's revision, they don't. Under Obamacare, those Americans who paid the penalty but did not get health insurance were still outlaws because they disobeyed the requirement the requirement in the law. Under the Supreme Court ruling, if you pay the tax, you're cool with the feds. Chief Justice John Roberts justified his recharacterization of the penalty in Obamacare as a tax on the ground that the amount involved is so small as to not be coercive. It, is, it merely provided an incentive, like how Cash for Clunkers provided a $5,000 incentive to trade in an old car. Millions kept their old cars and effectively lost $5,000. The court's opinion implied that if this tax were so high as to coerce compliance, it would then be an unconstitutional penalty. Quote, we need not here decide the precise point at which an exaction becomes so punitive that the taxing power does not authorize it. It remains true, however, that the power to tax is not the power to destroy while this court sits, unquote. Those who think that this criteria is judicially unenforceable said the same thing about the dull coercion test, which Chief Justice Roberts and four justices applied to the Medicaid requirements being imposed on the states. As he did with the individual mandate, Justice Roberts rewrote that statute to eliminate the coercive penalty. But this is not what is most important about the conversion of the individual mandate to a tax on the failure to buy insurance. Had the argument that the mandate was a constitutional regulation of interstate commerce under the Commerce Clause been accepted, future Congresses could jack up the amount of the penalty and add prison time to boot. But as I explained above, the majority of the justices rejected this argument and held that the mandate was not a proper exercise of the commerce power. So in the future, Congress may not punish people who fail to engage in economic activity with a high fine or jail time. 
Now, Chief Justice Roberts' decision made bad law in two respects. First, he claimed the power to rewrite a law by giving it a saving construction to uphold it after he had admitted that this was not the best reading of the law of what the law actually said. Second, he allowed that Congress may impose an unprecedented tax on inactivity, provided that it is low enough to preserve the taxpayer's choice to obey or pay. Both of these maneuvers made constitutional law worse. But here's the thing about this bad law. Although it is the holding of the court, unlike his reasoning in the Commerce Clause and Necessary and Proper Clause and Spending Powers, this saving construction reasoning was adopted by just one justice. Now, this is not to say that it might not prove to be influential in the future. Recall again Justice Powell's solo rationale upholding affirmative action on the basis of diversity, which was eventually adopted by the majority of the court in the Grutter case. Arguably, in fact, no other single judicial opinion has ever had such a great effect on public consciousness as the diversity rationale of Justice Powell. But I seriously doubt that Chief Justice Roberts' split-the-baby approach on the issue of tax penalties will have similar legs. Indeed, I think mandates are so toxic now politically, it may be a while before we ever get to test that proposition, but that's a good thing, not a bad thing. Further, as I've already explained, the deal that Roberts gave constitutional conservatives was to make constitutional law and the Commerce Clause and Necessary and Proper Clause and spending power better uh, in more important ways. Together with the four conservative dissenters, Roberts provided a fifth vote for all the propositions that we had argued. Now, I don't praise Chief Justice Roberts for making this political deal, if it indeed was a political deal. But neither am I willing to throw away all that we won because I don't like what we lost. Conservatives and libertarians need to stop agreeing with progressives that Roberts' ruling gave Congress a green light to impose economic mandates under its tax power because it didn't. Now, in the end, realistically, how much does this improvement in constitutional doctrine really matter? Does not the NFIB case really mean that the Supreme Court will uphold a federal law by hook or by crook, especially if it's a big federal law? Is it fig leaf federalism, as my colleague David argues in the Supreme Court review? Would it ever adhere to this doctrine if it really made a difference in a big case? Now, although the answers to these questions are a matter of speculation about the future, let me offer the following. Suppose that Congress were now to amend the Affordable Care Act to impose a criminal sanction on the failure to purchase health insurance. Would law professors dismiss this case as frivolous? I doubt it. How would lower courts likely rule? I think it's obvious that many more district courts would invalidate this law than ruled favorably on the previous Obamacare challenges, and their rulings would likely be upheld by their circuit courts of appeals. And would the Supreme Court even grant cert on such a case? I doubt it. Doctrine certainly constrained us in our challenges to the Affordable Care Act. We might like to have contested the insurance company regulations as outside the bounds of the original meaning of the Commerce Clause, but we were definitively foreclosed from such an argument by the 1944 case of U.S. versus Southeastern underwriters. Now, of course, changes in the justices could negate the importance of the NFIB decision, but that can happen with any doctrine. But I ask any litigant whether doctrine matters so long as the doctrine survives, and I believe the answer that any litigant will tell you will tell you also that the doctrine established by the NFIB decision matters too. To conclude, now we will have an election to decide the ultimate fate of Obamacare. But this election should also be about who gets selected to serve on the Supreme Court, should Republican presidents continue to nominate judicial conservatives who are enthralled with the New Dealer's mantra, mantra of judicial restraint? Or should Republicans nominate, the Republican presidents nominate constitutional conservatives who believe that it is not activism for judges to be engaged in enforcing the whole Constitution? All future nominees should be vetted, not only for their views on the meaning of the Constitution, but for their willingness to enforce that meaning. 
For over two years, the nation was given a wonderful lesson in constitutional law. The enumerated powers have limits that Congress cannot exceed. In June, the electorate was given a different lesson in judicial philosophy. Judicial restraint in enforcing those limits is no virtue. In November and beyond, we will just see how well those lessons were learned. Thanks. Um, I also wanted to thank Ilya and uh, Cato for giving me another shot at uh, coming to discuss briefly the particulars of the Supreme Court's ruling in NFIB versus Ibilius and its implications. Um, as befits one of the most important cases in the 220-plus years of our republic, the ruling has profound political policy and constitutional implications. Now, the policy implications are pretty obvious. Obamacare has been upheld and remain the law of the land. Um, certainly, uh, if President Obama is reelected, uh, if his Republican challenger prevails, chances are very good that the law would be overturned, either completely or at least most of it. The political implications are less clear. The political pundits have been debating them since before the June 28th decision and continue to do so with Gusto. Uh, will decision advantage President Obama on balance or his Republican challenge him? It's Romney only time will tell. In any case, I'm not a political pundit, so I will not spend time talking about it. So I'll focus in the limited amount of time I have on the constitutional implications. Now, I'm going to echo some of the things that, uh, that Randy mentioned, although he and I have a, a somewhat of a, as you will see, a subtle disagreement about a few points. Now, I think we both agree that what was at stake in this challenge uh, that a privilege of laboring over two years on is not at the most fundamental level health care. What was really at stake there is in the challenge to both individual insurance purchase mandate and the mandatory expansion of Medicaid are the Constitution's structural guarantees of individual liberty which limit governmental power and ensure political accountability by dividing this power vertically between states and federal government. In upholding individual mandate, we all agree on the grounds that the government was defending it, namely the combination of a commerce clause. A necessary and proper clause would have destroyed this dual sovereignty system, uh, which Justice Kennedy aptly called the most distinctive feature of American constitutionalism by permitting the federal government to exercise general police power that can only be wielded in our constitutional system by the states. Now, with this in mind, um, as we already heard this morning, the decision has both excellent features and some bad ones. Good news-wise, we all agree that the Court has articulated clear limits on both a Commerce Clause, necessary and proper clause, holding that neither of those two enumerated powers can form the basis of a general police power to be exercised by the federal government. And given the fact that we've made this argument long before Obamacare, was enacted in the pages of Wall Street Journal and then pressed it with gusto in, in, in various briefs and our arguments. Amidst the derision from the Obama administration, much of the media and virtually all the legal academy, with notable exception of, uh, of Randy and Ilya, and literally, uh, I can probably count other folks in the fingers of my hand, uh, having it embraced, and I agree embraced by uh, the five-justice majority of a court was good above Constitution and very personally satisfying. Um, Equally impressive is the fact that the court has uh, made clear putting the real meat in the 
teaching of Stuart Machine and, and Dole cases that Congress cannot use federal spending as a way of coercing states into adopting and implementing federal programs. And in this case, all of the states have a choice of um, implementing the Medicaid fundamental restructuring provisions with only new federal funding at risk. And the fact that it got support of seven justices is also particularly consequential, not only in the Medicaid area, but in very many other so-called cooperative federalism programs. Now, now comes the bad news. Uh, and I disagree somewhat with Randy because my biggest problem with the tax portion of a ruling is not, repeat not, that the court has rewritten the statute to get rid of a mandate. That's sui generis. It's not anything you can cite for support in any future cases. My problem is, as I've described briefly in the balance of my time, is what the court has said about um, the essence of a tax power in the process of doing so. Now, the court has basically held, and again, we can skip the details about the fact that it was the Chief Justice who came up with this argument, but let's just say the court has held that Congress can impose tax not only on property or income or some type of activity, but on a mere failure to undertake some prescribed course of action. And this ruling suggests, if you take it seriously, that there is a very same potential for morphing the taxing power into constitutionally forbidden specie of general police power, as would have been the case with unlimited power to regulate interstate commerce, either under the Commerce Clause itself or as aided by the Necessary and Proper Clause. Now, I say that realizing that Congress's power to lay taxes has always been interpreted broadly. The court has also repeatedly made clear that tax is not invalid because it has a regulatory rather than purely fiscal purpose behind that measure. And Congress, over years, has imposed taxes on unimaginable variety of products and transactions, from fishing rods to bows and arrows to sea voyages. And in the past, these types of tax regulations have certainly been directed at encouraging or discouraging particular conduct. For example, taxes and wagering and winnings. However, as I think pretty obvious here, the Obamacare's requirement to maintain a congressionally prescribed level of uh, health insurance benefits is far more direct. It does not merely encourage, ladies and gentlemen, the purchase of health care insurance by offering some tax benefits, such as a credit or exemption from otherwise applicable tax obligations for those who purchase a particular type of an insurance package. Nor does the mandate tax a particular type of conduct or a transaction. For example, by imposing a tax on the purchase of health care services paid not through an approved insurance policy, but with cash, credit card, or check. The mandate or written mandate imposes a tax on the status of not having that insurance. Use a, uh, an analogy, it is not a tax on gambling, it is a tax on not gambling. Now, as, as the case with Congress's exercise of its Commerce Clause to compel people to enter into interstate commerce, there are no precedents where Congress has imposed a tax on the simple failure to buy a good and service. And of course, this just was the case with the commerce power, and that's the argument we made on several occasions throughout the case of Congress ever believed that it could regulate the conduct for a simple expedient of taxing the failure to engage in it, that extraordinary power would have been used before. But even more importantly, just as the case, the key problem with the government's 
Commerce Clause power, the ability to impose a tax not on, for example, taking a boat trip, similarly lacks a judicially enforceable, meaningful, neutral limiting principle that could keep this power from serving as a basis for general police power. Now, can Congress impose a tax on anyone who does not own an electrically powered vehicle? as opposed to providing a credit of some kind to those who do, can it impose taxes on those who don't consume their particular quota of uh, broccoli or dairy products or cereals or beef, pork, chicken, or various other products that people can buy in the, in the marketplace? The court's NFIB decision suggests to, that the answer to those questions is basically yes. Now, the question, of course, for us is what restraints, of any, outside of purely political restraints, are left on the table under the court's vision of the taxing power? Now, the court, of course, continues to acknowledge that there limits the taxing power, at least in theory, and, and Randy touched upon some of them. And the court is also encouraged, and so am I, but as a practical matter, the tax power remains a blunt and politically inexpedient instrument, which is good, but that's, again, political means, and those of us who care about structural limitations and federal government's power believe that those limits ought to be judicially enforceable for, again, meaningful, judicially enforceable limiting principle. Now, I acknowledge, of course, that the court restated its position that a tax that is, quote, a mere penalty would not be sustained under the taxing power, but it also conspicuously declined, quote, to decide the precise point which an exaction becomes so punitive that the taxing power does not authorize it. I certainly acknowledge that it clearly is not something to be enforced for a criminal sanction. It's a good thing, but not, in my opinion, sufficient. Now, the thing that probably bothers me the most, uh, the, the two points I'm going to make, uh, the court pretty much, or I should say the Chief Justice, pretty much emasculated the Constitution's other basic limitation on the taxing power, and as I've said in the past, all of enumerated powers have limiting principles, but of course they're not the same with all of them. So one of the key limiting principles on the taxing power is the requirement that direct taxes be apportioned among states. And as we all know, apportionment means that taxes are to be paid in proportion to each state's population. It's a politically very burdensome process that the framers designed to make it difficult for large states to, to dominate the House of Representatives to embark on that may theoretically decide, result in the residents of some states paying more or less than the residents of other states, which, again, would be politically inexpedient. That's why direct taxation has been such a rare phenomenon throughout our constitutional history. The court, of course, avoided holding uh, the individual mandate unconstitutional. And again, as those of you have looked at the way the briefs unfolded, we have argued from the very beginning that it's not a tax because that's not what Congress did. But Arguendo, if it's a tax, it was an unconstitutional tax because it's a direct tax that should have been apportioned. Um, now, to get around this argument, the, the court's decision basically narrowed the meaning of the term direct tax to capitation or head taxes and taxes on real property, which is frankly, not to use a mild term, is absurd since both a constitutional text and the history of the 16th Amendment, which was adopted specifically to enable Congress to pass unapportioned taxes on income from whatever sources derived and with regard to uh, or provide apportionment with regard to census enumeration is inconsistent with this conclusion. 
So um, the apportionment requirement is off the table. The other problem that I see here is that in the process of, of trying to work its magic on the tax power, the court basically questioned whether or not Congress itself can impose limits on its exercise of a taxing power. This is because in, in designing or rewriting the statute as a tax, the court suggested that it, Robin Congress, was the ultimate judge of which enumerated power Congress was exercising. This rule, if, if actually applied, would not only vastly expand, expand Congress's power to lay and collect taxes, but would make Congress somewhat less able to determine what it's actually doing. Now, as we all know, and, and Randy touched upon that, the individual mandate was not enacted as a tax. Uh, its sponsors denied any such intent, and the congressional legislative findings referred to the power to regulate interstate commerce. Nevertheless, the court concluded that the mandate could be reasonably characterized as a tax. Now, I don't want to over-dramatize the problem here. Uh, the, Cong the court has not clearly divested Congress of a mastery of its legislative domain. In fact, uh, the court's actual mode of analysis paid attention to what it considered to be the relevant congressional intent, in particular in explaining why the penalty for failure to comply with the mandate operated like a tax. The court made some hay of a notion which it did not believe Congress embraced that, quote, Congress did not think it was creating four million outlaws. And it's also true that while Congress did not um, invoke the taxing power, and there are lots of legislative evidence that it was not relying on taxing power and it specifically invoked the Commerce Clause power, it did not, ladies and gentlemen, clearly say that it was not relying on tax power. Had it done so, had it been what I would call truth and labeling provision, it would have made it more difficult to, um, to rewrite the statute. Now, let me close briefly by saying about fig leaf federalism. I agree with Randy that the tax portion of analysis is so idiosyncratic that it is not necessarily going to prove dispositive as far as the evolution of our constitutional doctrine is concerned. At the same time, ladies and gentlemen, I am troubled by the fact that much as we care about the line of cases, beginning with Lopez and Morrison and continuing with NFIB, that vigorously upheld, and again, as a student of the Court's opinion and the Constitution, I am delighted by the crystalline clarity with which the Chief Justice described the, the structural limitations on the federal government's power and its connection to individual liberty, going even beyond the beautiful language used in cases like Bond and Kennedy's concurrence in Lopez. That's all good. But I'm troubled by the fact that the only instances where the court coalesced with a workable majority to take down a statute have been instances where that not much was at stake. And frankly, not all that much was at stake in Lopez, and not much was at stake in Morrison, and not a great deal was at stake in Bond. Um, it remains to be seen uh, whether or not, I hope so, I'm not saying it would not happen, but it remains to be seen whether or not we're going to find ourselves with another case. And I'm not being ideological here. It could be a, a conservatively inspired statute promulgated by a Republican majority that presents some structural problem because I do not think that the problem with failure to observe federalism is limited to the Democrats or the liberals. 
But I would like to see one of these days, and then I would admit that I was wrong, Congress taking, uh, the court taking down a very important product produced by the two political branches on this grounds. I have not seen it yet. And the combination of that fig leaf federalism with the fact that Congress now has a roadmap, it could come up with something that is not much of a penalty, not enough of a penalty, but nevertheless penalizes individuals who don't engage in prescribed conduct that can enable the federal government to have a species of general police power. Again, if it doesn't happen, I agree with Randy, mandates are very unpopular, but it's a political matter. The war may turn in, in 10 or 15 or 20 years. So not to take all the good things from this case, which I as ecstatic about as Randy, if, if not more. There are some there are troubling elements here going forward. Thank you. I'm Jim Blumstein, and I'm here to talk about the Medicaid component of the Affordable Care Act cases. I like to tell Yogi Berra stories, so I'm going to start with one. Uh, Yogi was once asked, what's more important in baseball, physical ability or mental attitude? And Yogi thought for a moment, he said, you know, 90% of the game is physical, the other half is mental. Uh, that's kind of the way I feel about the individual mandate and the Medicaid mandate. 90% of the case was about the individual mandate, but the other half is about the Medicaid mandate, and that's the part that I am going to call, uh, talk about. Uh, and as I was thinking about uh, the, uh, indiv- the uh, entire case, and as it was uh, reported by CNN and Fox News and all the reporters, um, uh, I-, I was amused by how the media jumps to conclusions. It was metaphorical for so much that they do. Uh, as I was watching the decision on TV news, uh, they kept saying, oh, and the law is struck down, the law is struck down. Whoops, there's another perspective coming. And, and I was <laughs> reminded of another story I like to tell about a man who calls home, and, and um, a woman answers the phone, and the guy says, well, who is this? And she says, oh, I'm with the new cleaning service. And he said, well, uh, uh, could you please ask my wife to come to the phone? And, and she says, well, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, but she left strict orders not to be disturbed. Uh, she's with a man. And... Uh, the husband, this uh, man says, well, how would you like to earn some money? And the woman says, how much? And he says, $10,000, a lot of money. And she says, well, what do I have to do for this $10,000? So, well, I want you to take the gun that's in the drawer in the hall table. She says, well, I saw it while I was cleaning. And I want you to go upstairs, and I want you to shoot my wife and the man she's with. And the woman said, $10,000. She says, okay, you've got a deal. So he hears her put the phone down. Here's her walking up the steps. Here's her opening the door. And Two shots ring out, and then he hears her coming down. He said, well, I shot your wife and the man she's with. What do you want me to do with the bodies? And he says, well, I want you to drag them down the steps across the patio. She said, patio? And I want you to dump them in the swimming pool. She says, sir, there's no swimming pool here. And then he says, is this five, 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 six, seven, eight? <laughs> so, so you have to be careful about jumping to conclusions, and I thought about that as I heard the CNN reporter and, the, uh, uh, and all the other reporters under the, under the circumstances. Uh, I, I want to start out my, my comments with seven points 
uh, three of which are policy points, and one of those three is my personal reaction, which probably only I care about, and then four quick summary points uh, on a doctrine that was established, and then go back through it more methodically. First, uh, I think that as I thought about these issues and as one looks at what's the problem with the Medicaid mandate in the Affordable Care Act is uh, a broader question of cooperative federalism. As I started to study cooperative federalism, I thought, oh, this is great. State should have skin in the game. Uh, this is a part of a joint venture between the federal government and the states. But as the joint opinion is recognized in this case, there's tremendous power that is given to the federal government by this cooperative federalism model, and it's a significant leveraging problem, and I think that the leveraging problem is really the problem that uh, I saw in the Medicaid mandate as part of the Affordable Care Act. Second is, part of that is that there's, of this leveraging problem, is there's a displacement of political accountability. The history of Medicaid is a good example. The states, the federal government makes it very easy for states to get into the Medicaid program, uh, strong matching, and then over time, uh, the states then drive the federal budget. Uh, the states have a good deal. They spend money. They drive the federal budget. This is true of Medicaid. And then when the states realize that they have pretty much tapped out their resources, the federal government and advocates for the programs come in at the federal level, and they raise the floor uh, and mandate more of the programs. And this is really what happened in the ACA, is that uh, states, all states had been in Medicaid uh, for years, and the federal government came in through the Affordable Care Act and said the states don't have freedom to set the terms and conditions of who's going to participate. All persons with incomes under 133% of poverty or with a 5% income disregard in practical terms up to 138% of poverty must be covered by the states. And so you wind up having this displacement. It's kind of a a yo-yo effect or a renvoy effect where you have the states driving the federal budget at the beginning and then the federal government driving the state's budget. And there's a real problem of, of uh, displacing political accountability. So one of the lessons, I think, is that we have to be very careful about uh, cooperative federalism programs. And the idea of skin in the game sounds nice, but it just transfers enormous power to the federal government to use its uh, spending power. This is not a constitutional claim in all cases, but it's a policy claim. And then third is the personal point of these initial comments. And uh, not that anyone cares about this, but you can find online an op-ed that I did as part of a New York Times online forum uh, where I was not unsympathetic to the, uh, to the Affordable Care Act uh, Medicaid provision when I misunderstood this until one of my research assistants pointed out that I was misreading the law. And initially I thought that subsidies existed for all persons with incomes under 400% of poverty. That's not true. Uh, subsidies only exist for persons within the range of 100 to 400 percent of poverty. There are no subsidies on these federal exchanges for persons with incomes under 100 percent of poverty. That's when I turned and dedicated myself to overturning this law, is that I realized that that was really, there was no intent and no practical effect, that, that, that a, such an irrational provision that if states 
terminated Medicaid or opted out of Medicaid, the most vulnerable, the poorest of our citizens, the most needy and the most worthy, uh, would not be subsidized by the federal government. They would be left totally high and dry without any subsidies. Meanwhile, people with incomes up to about $90,000 for a family of four would be subsidized on the federal exchange. Well, this was pretty obvious what was going on. Nobody who drafted the law, no one involved in the law, understood uh, that the states had an option, a realistic option. And that, for me, was the was the belt and suspenders, that the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back. That's when I turned, and I think that's when I was convinced that this was not a real choice. Uh, now I want to mention four, very quickly, four uh, key elements of the decision. In case I run out of time, which I might, I want to get these points out. First, uh, we're talking about things that were accomplished in the case. There are four, these are four very notable things that were accomplished in the Medicaid part of the opinion. Uh, first, the court rejected the idea that uh, judicial enforcement of limits on uh, conditions on federal spending programs were non-justiciable. In other words, saying it more positively is that there are judicially enforceable limits on conditional spending. This, is this was a contested question, uh, and the court very clearly, 7-2, to two, uh, concluded that there were judicially enforceable limits on uh, conditions attached to federal spending programs. Secondly, uh, the court for years had said that there's uh, that inducement is okay, coercion is not okay, uh, but there had not been a case in the modern period in which the court had actually implemented that. So uh, one important contribution of the NFIB case is it turned this dictum into doctrine. Uh, it, it gave meaning to the anti-commandeering principle in the context of spending clause cases. Anti-commandeering had been a doctrine developed in the context of commerce clause cases, and this turned a formal doctrine in the commerce clause into a functional doctrine in the, anti in the uh, spending clause case. That is to say, governments cannot, under the anti-commandeering principle, governments cannot require states, the federal government cannot require states to act uh, via conditions on spending. And so the important thing here is to remember what is protected. Under any commandeering, the federal government cannot force the states to act. Another way of saying it negatively is that the state's right of inaction without adverse consequences compared to the status quo is protected, and that's an important thing. And that was not protected. That principle was violated in the Medicaid mandate component of the Affordable Care Act. States had to act one way or another, unless they wanted to face fiscal di uh, disaster. Thirdly, uh, so again, the importance of protecting state inaction is a critical point here. Thirdly, the court adopted rather definitively what the court had initially stated in the Pennhurst case in 1981, that the right way of thinking about these federal-state relationships is the contract model. Uh, and once you look at this through the prism or the lens of contract theory, uh, the issues really are illuminated very considerably. Uh, contract law draws a distinction between the contract formation stage and the contract modification stage. Uh, contract formation courts are very deferential. Contract modification, much less so because of the risk of leveraging. This change in the Affordable Care Act was at contract modification. When states formed Medicaid and entered into Medicaid, that was the contract formation stage, and then this Affordable Care Act is a modification. And it was such a substantial modification that Chief Justice Roberts said it was really an entirely new program. Um, the 
principle of protecting non-action is, in fact, respected at contract formation. If, if a state does, chooses not to enter into a federal cooperative federalism program, its right of inaction is protected. It doesn't get the benefits, but it doesn't get the burdens. It is status quo neutral. Uh, in this particular case, at contract modification, the protection of inaction is really uh, troublesome. And that's really what we have here in the Affordable Care Act situation, is that uh, the potential for excessive leveraging exists because inaction at contract modification is not possible. The government kept telling us, oh, the states can, act out, can opt out. But that requires action, not inaction. If the states did not act, then they had fiscal dis, uh, disaster. Why is that? Because they had ongoing relationships to their Medicaid beneficiaries, but they didn't qualify for federal matching. So therefore, if they didn't act, the disaster was that 100% of state Medicaid expenditures would be borne by the states. Nobody contemplated that with Medicaid. And so uh, the contract modification idea sheds light onto the troublesome aspects of what was going on in the Affordable Care Act situation. Fourth and finally for these introductory good seven, uh, kind of the pick seven uh, in, in these first comments, is the notice, the clear notice idea. This has been flying under the radar, but it's one of the critical dimensions of the court's decision in the Affordable Care Act cases. The timing of clear notice. The idea since 1981 in the Pennhurst case has been that states can only be bound in these cooperative federalism programs if they have clear notice of what's involved. And uh, that clear notice has to be unambiguous to protect the state autonomy and the state interests. Now, what has not been resolved prior to this case is when that notice obligation kicks in in a contract uh, in an ongoing contractual relationship such as Medicaid. Does it kick in at the time of contract formation or does it kick in at the time of contract modification? And I argued in the amicus brief that uh, Ilya mentioned uh, that the issue had to be seen at contract formation uh, in certain circumstances such as this. Um, and the NFIB case adopts that principle. It refuses to allow Congress to reserve all powers unilaterally and willy-nilly to redo the Medicaid deal. Uh, basically, uh, there is not notice at the time of what was involved. A reservation of powers is an intrusion on state autonomy, and therefore the clear notice rule must attach at contract uh, formation, in my judgment, when there are uh, the, the changes are not uh, uh, foreseeable and when they're substantial. And so you can't have a regime where every change requires notice at the beginning. You have to accommodate to some extent. But the accommodation is where uh, there's notice, there's, there's uh, foreseeability, or there's an implied term of the original contract. So the contract lens really helps understand the problems that the states were facing under the Affordable Care Act and the regime that the Supreme Court has adopted. Again, let me say the magic word seven to two on this issue uh, and where uh, uh, Justices Breyer and Kagan uh, went along with this argument. Now let me go kind of circle back and kind of talk through this quickly. The ACA requires, as I've said, that there be uh, uh, coverage for all persons with incomes under 133% of poverty. Uh, 
The problem with Medicaid has been a displacement of political accountability that I described, the states driving the federal budget, the federal government driving state budget. The problem is leveraging, and that was the strategy that the ACA adopted. It decided that it would take away all pre-existing Medicaid funding if states did not comply with these new terms and conditions. So basically, the strategy uh, of the federal government was a belt and suspenders leveraging approach, excessive leveraging. Medicaid is a matching program, and Medicaid was linked in 1965 to income support under aid to families with dependent children. It was always seen as poverty medicine. Just as Medicare was linked to the income guidelines for Social Security, it was adding medical care to these uh, uh, categories of income support. And so uh, there have been some alterations over the years. The government made a lot of this. Some commentators have. But basically, no state would have thought when it entered Medicaid that it would be expected to cover folks up to 133 or 138% of poverty. There's no reasonable case to be made that the states could have foreseen that that would have been an obligation. Medicaid was a poverty medicine program. Now, what about contract, the contract framework? Uh, the court has adopted this framework, and there is a difference, as I've said in my once-over-lightly uh, statement, that uh, this is not contract formation where there's high deference, but contract modification. And uh, there's an ongoing relational contract between the states and the federal government. And think of this example. If you think of nothing else to take away from this part of the talk, think of the, uh, the, the following. Sailors make a deal for wages uh, on a fishing vessel. They go out to sea, they get to the fishing waters, and they uh, decide uh, that they are going to ask for, I think it was a doubling of the wages in the contract, or they wouldn't do their job. Well, clearly they had uh, the owner of the vessel uh, in, in a uh, leveraging situation, um, capitulated, they came back, the, the owner of the vessel challenged this, and the court said that's excessive leveraging. If you wanted to do the deal, that's fine, but you had to do the deal before the ship set sail. This is really what the ACA is about. It, think of those, that's, that's the Alaska Packers case. Think of the sailors in that situation. That's the way the states were when they were being leveraged by the federal government to take on these extra, uh, extra obligations. Now, on the notice issue, uh, I want to just mention quickly notice and coercion and then finish. Um, the timing of the notice was critical. Uh, the court refused to enforce this reservation of powers provision in the Social Security Act saying that no state can be expected to uh, uh, have anticipated uh, what the obligations were, and that type of broad uh, reservation of powers conflicted with states' autonomy and the state's ability to basically order its own priorities uh, unless the, the notice was given timely, and that meant a contract formation. Uh, now, the notice requirement has two objectives, a positive and a negative objective. The positive is that it provides notice to the state so that they know what they're getting in for, into when they sign up, that they do a cost-benefit analysis, and the perspective, as the Arlington case says, has to be that of the states. 
We want to measure the benefits and the costs, and we as states want to make the deal. So the argument that the federal government has said, well, goodness gracious, this is a great deal. You have 90% federal matching here. This is a great deal. That's not the point. The authority to make that decision is up to the states. And what I like to tell the students is it would be a great deal if Bill Gates gave you his house, $30 million, 25,000 square feet, under the condition that uh, you have to pay the taxes, you have to pay the insurance, you have to pay the landscaping, you have to pay the gardening, and if the roof falls off, you have to put on a new roof. Well, it sounds like a great deal, 25,000 square feet, $30 million house. How many of us could afford to take on those conditions? Sometimes a great condition is unaffordable, or as I've refined it, if someone told me you can buy your wife the Hope Diamond at a 90% discount, I'm sorry, sweetheart, can't do it. Um, and so, I mean, I think that there, there are sometimes a good deal is a good deal, but it's not affordable. And the decision on affordability has to be the states with good information at the front end. Uh, because the states have a right under the anti-commandeering principle not to participate in these programs, and the notice is protecting that interest. Secondly, it has a negative role. And Chief Justice Roberts made a lot of this. That is to say, it protects against after-the-fact um, leveraging, blindsiding. And basically, it guards against federal bait and switch. You can't be in for a dime and then tell the states you're in for a dollar. Uh, the notice rule has to be at the time of contract formation when there is a substantial change that was not foreseeable by the states. And so that is an important aspect of the NFIB case, is that it establishes both this positive and negative role for, um, for the uh, notice provision. Then the, anti the coercion point. Uh, it tr the, the opinion transfers this anti-commandeering principle, and for a long time the principle, of the principle of coercion had been in the cases as dictum, but it had not been well defined. And so the anti-commandeering principle in functional terms is now transferred into the spending power domain. And so I'm only going to have time to enumerate some of the factors and not get into them in detail. First, the action-inaction point that I just described, uh, contract modification, there's a real problem that states are required to, uh, uh, to act. Uh, the, the contract formation modification is a cr critical. The structure of the subsidies I've described, under 400% of, under 100% of poverty, there's no uh, subsidies. This is bait and switch and leveraging, and then the sheer size of the case under the circumstances. So are there clear and definitive guidelines in the case? I think there are some important points, as any functional analysis will indicate, that contract modification is key, uh, the structure of the subsidies is, is critical, the size are important. There are some guideposts in this opinion that will apply in future cases, and I think we're going to see those future cases come. I predict, although it's been thrown out because of procedural grounds, that the uh, maintenance of effort issue is the next one to be teed up. Thank you, you very much. Before we open it to questions, Randy has a comment. I just have a brief comment on uh, David's point. I, I, I was on the panel with David the Monday after the decision, and I'm, I'm pleased to see he's not as gloomy as he was then. Uh, I, I basically want to echo my agreement with virtually everything he said and just uh, give two quick points to put it in perspective. One, 
um, uh, to sh- you go into you go into legal combat with the justices and the judges you have, unfortunately. And I think it's pretty fair to say, and I think David will agree with me, uh, that if Congress had simply called the penalty a tax or invoked its tax power, if it had done so expressly, I think we would have lost in every lower court, we would have lost in every court of appeals, and cert would probably have been denied, even though that would have been bad law. It wouldn't have even been following all the tax policy law or all the, all the tax law. But if they had just done that, I think we would have lost completely, and we never would even reach the Commerce Clause and Necessary and Proper Clause uh, cases. So we were really lucky that they did it the way they did so that we made the good law that we made, and then the tax law that we made wasn't as bad as that would have been, which is that Congress can do whatever it wants with the tax power. And that's the theory of the four liberal justices. That's the theory they held. Which brings me to the second point. David's troubled that the only time the court coalesces to strike down a law is when the law is relatively trivial. It doesn't, it, there's not a, um, there's no, the stakes are not very high. I agree with him. That's, that's a description of the facts, and it is troubling. But there's a reason for this. We have been operating since at least Lopez and Morrison with a five to four vote for upholding enumerated powers in any cases whatsoever. That means you ha- if you have four implacable votes, for upholding every exercise of federal power and only five votes for striking it down. You've got to hold that five votes every single time. And five votes is just not enough to do that. Somebody is going to break. So, and there's no natural law that says there should only be five votes that are for that position. That is, you need more than five. I think the answer is you need more than five. And if you have more than five, then you can let one go or two go, or they won't even go so much because the pressure won't really be on the, spring, the swing vote so much in order to uh, uphold a big, important, momentous law. So this just tells you the role that politics has to play in the future of constitutional law in the next presidential uh, uh, election and every presidential election to come, uh, which means this election is of supreme importance for the future of constitutional law in this country. And perhaps it may be a little too important this year uh, to consider voting for third parties that we might otherwise want to vote for uh, and not to focus our attention on, this, uh, uh, on the need to have more than five votes in the future because I'm afraid that if the president is reelected, uh, there's a good chance that they'll either solidify the position they have or could possibly now it could move to them having five votes and then there's no chance at all. Um, I agree with Randy's second point. As to the first point, I don't know. Um, if this was passed as a tax, so there would not have been a need for rewriting, the arguments about propositions that this is not an income tax, this is not an excise tax, this is indeed a classical direct tax imposing you because you exist, and I'm saying it having read and reread the, the tax portion of opinion at least a dozen times, and that it has not been apportioned, and indeed may be incapable of apportionment. If you bring, if one brought a lawsuit uh, with you know, well-written briefs and, and good old arguments in the right circuit, fifth or eleven, for example, we we might have done okay. I, I agree, it wouldn't have been as uh, as uh, as easy as all that. But this is one of those exercises in uh, in footerology that's impossible to predict. Well, you go to war with the justices you have, I guess that's why nobody predicted the outcome because of the unknown unknowns here. (laughs) All right, questions. Uh, Wait for the microphone. Please identify yourself in any affiliation and actually ask a question rather than giving a speech. Uh, I'm Charlie Hymack. I'm a retired military. And I would like to talk about or ask a question concerning the, uh, what you just talked about, that's the tax. Um, I, I feel that the, uh, uh, so, so 
that the individuals or companies do not have to pay the tax. And the reason why I believe that is, <clears throat> at least as a layman reading the Constitution, and excuse me for lecturing, but the Congress is the only one that has the right to write legislation or modify legislation. <laughs> the executive branch cannot do that. They can, uh, the president can approve or veto uh, legislation, suggest changes, and the judicial branch, according to the Constitution, to, is not authorized to write legislation. Therefore, <clears throat> since they changed the words from a penalty to a tax in the de deliberation of the court, it has to go back to the Congress, and the Congress has to rewrite the legislation, and the president has to approve it. So if someone goes and takes you to court for not paying, uh, you can turn around and say, this is the legislation that was written. Uh, I don't have to pay it because it's a penalty. Well, the, the, the short answer is that the court did not say that we wrote the statute. The court, as Randy and I have mentioned several times, the court has said that they merely construed what Congress has written, and I would say that uh, I would not want to defend a person against a collection action on the theory that it's not what Congress did, no matter how much we as lawyers may feel that indeed the court rewrote the statute to, uh, to save it. Well, one uh, potential lawsuit I could see, depending on how the implementing uh, regulations are promulgated by the IRS, but uh, you know, this whole idea of there not being a, a criminal punishment, um, let's say someone owes $1,000 in federal income tax and $1,000 in Obamacare tax. I, I call it the unicorn tax, a creature of no known constitutional provenance that'll never be seen again. Anyway, so you owe 1000 and 1000 You pay into the IRS $1,000 thinking you're fulfilling your income tax obligation. The IRS treats that as your Obamacare tax payment, and all of a sudden, you still owe $1,000 federal income tax, which, as we all know, has dire uh, consequences for, for not paying. So there could be some challenge of whether you really have a choice and, and uh, you know, how, the, how the implementation uh, works. Let me just, uh, now's as good a time as any to mention a, a, a lawsuit that's currently pending against Obamacare uh, brought by the Pacific Legal Foundation. They had a pending lawsuit. It was put on hold waiting for the NFIB decision, and now they've amended their complaint, um, first of all, to establish that there, it was the holding of the case, that their clients don't have to buy insurance. But secondly, they're bringing an origination clause challenge, which says that all revenue measures have to originate in the House and cannot originate in the Senate. Um, and now they're arguing that this being a tax, as well as all the other taxes in the bill, uh, it did not originate in the House, except in a, in a technical way that it should not be allowed, which is they took a bill from the House, stripped it of every single word, called that an amendment, and replaced it entirely with the Affordable Care Act. That should not be allowed to satisfy the confrontation clause, I mean the origination clause of the Constitution. Um, and, and, you know, who knows whether this is going to have any success or not. Uh, I mean, I've I think it probably has a better chance than we had when we started uh, of working, given the uh, different political climate that we're in. Uh, but it's something that's actually valid, and, and it's based on a rule in the Constitution that says revenue measures must originate in the House. So you might keep your eye on that lawsuit uh, to see what happens next with that. It was not foreclosed by our lawsuit because we didn't raise that claim. Wait for the microphone. Jim Duhon, no affiliation. Uh, in terms of the level of penalty that could be imposed under the guise of a tax, or the, the level of a tax that can be imposed, uh, as I read Robert's decision, if the tax approached 
or equaled the cost of compliance, it would be uh, considered a penalty because it wouldn't raise any revenue. I mean, the theory seems to be that if it's, if it's high enough to compel action rather than, than pay the, the IRS, it's a penalty. So I, I don't, and maybe this is directed to Mr. Bloomstein, uh, I don't see that there's much risk that a, a large tax could be justified uh, as something other than a mandate. But maybe you could respond to that. Well, um, Jim, you never really spoke on that yeah. issue. I don't know if you have I, any thoughts. I'm Well, I mean, in a, in a, I think you're right. I think your reading of the decision is right insofar as it matters what Chief Justice Roberts said in the decision. That's what he said. And, and more than that, if it gets any higher than that, it's no longer an option. It's no longer a choice. It's a coercion. So it, there's two reasons. And so there is a standard that was built into his analysis, which is it, it, you, they can't tax you more than the cost it would, uh, what it would cost you to comply. Uh, because that makes it a penalty. And so the measure of the, the, the tax is limited by the cost of compliance to some degree. That's built into his analysis. Again, it's one justice's reasoning that whether that one justice's reasoning will ever be uh, uh, revisited is an, is an open question. In fact, it has all the hallmarks of a this day and this train only decision, which was really meant to get him to the result that he wanted to get to, which was uphold Obamacare for whatever reason he decided he wanted to do that. Um, and so I just don't know that there, there's that much uh, risk or danger that we're going to see this come back again. Uh, I maybe agree, there will be. I agree with Randy. In fact, there's a certain elegance, ladies and gentlemen, in using the compliance cost as the yardstick for what would deprive you of a choice in the sense of driving, because assuming economic rationale, you're not going to pay you know, a, a cent more than it would cost to comply. I get it, and of course, as we know, in this particular instance, in, in the mandate itself, there was the upper cap, which is the cost of, of a qualifying package. Uh, and again, I don't disagree, but hopefully it's one off. On the other hand, if it's not one off, consider how uncomfortable the, the limiting principle is, which is the more burdensome and expensive uh, particular obligation that the government wishes to impose on you, the higher is the penalty, excuse me, uh, not the penalty, the higher is the tax you're being charged with. So uh, that's, not, that's not a very good limiting principle. Hi, I'm Evan Burnick. I'm with the Charles Koch Institute. For me, the most mystifying part of the majority opinion is how it dealt with or how it didn't really deal with the Anti-Injunction Act. Um, it seems to me that if this is in fact a tax, then you don't have standing until there's an actual effort to collect it. So there shouldn't even be a decision in the first place. And I thought you guys might have commented on that. Well, make this as quickly as I can because it's a technical matter. But basically the argument is that a tax can be a tax for statutory construction purposes under the Anti-Injunction Act, um, or it cannot be a tax under the Act based on statutory construction, but still be a tax under the Constitution uh, based on constitutional interpretation of the court. Uh, and that's what they held. In other words, the, the, the Anti-Injunction Act is interpreted separately. And the issue is whether Congress would have intended this measure to be covered by the Anti-Injunction Act, and they said it didn't on, as a matter of statutory construction. Do I think this is a, <laughs> a, a plausible or a fun uh, or a wonderful uh, distinction? I don't. But this is what they said, and uh, it just goes to show you um, 
what the court can do if it wants to. And in this case, it wanted to reach the merits, in part because everybody wanted it to reach the merits, including the government. Alexander R. Cohen, Business Rights Center of the Atlas Society. There's been some talk about the uh, political difficulties associated with using the taxing power. Do you think the political discourse since the decision has borne out the idea that the fact that the taxing power has to be used to do this sort of thing will act as a restraint? In particular, uh, what do you think of the efficacy or lack thereof of the charges that President Obama has raised everybody's taxes by means of Obamacare? Well, uh, let me just say this, and, and it's an excellent point. In fact, when we convene first, again, courtesy of Ilya Rajan and Cato, um, uh, President Bloomstein was not there, but Randy and I were shortly after the decision. Uh, we were sort of talking about how uh, this would play out because, of course, the court, the only way in which the mandate was sustained is calling it a tax. Unfortunately, what has happened uh, so far um, leads me to conclude that maybe the uh, you can have something that's taxed for constitutional purposes, apropos of Randy's point about the relationship <laughs> between the Anti-Injunction Act and the taxing power. They tax for constitutional purposes, but not a tax for political purposes because this administration continues to maintain quite robustly that this is a penalty. It's not a tax, and and it seems with you know some connivance by the media that nobody has taken them to task for it. Now, I don't want to say that this is always would uh, obtain this way in the future. Uh, I imagine if you have a statute with this kind of a mandate or something that lends itself uh, to be viewed as a mandate, their opponents would scream from day one, hey, it's a tax. It doesn't matter what you put in your legislative findings. It's a tax you're telling the court in the future to construe as a tax. So there will be an additional argument. But I am not convinced that it would not be possible in the future to have a, 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 a non-tax tax be put in a legislation, given what has transpired since uh, June 28th. Uh, Gerald Mossinghoff, George Washington University Law School. I would love to hear uh, speculation by our experts on why the Chief Justice did what he did. <laughs> Anyone? No one has any, look, look, I, put any look, thought into that? Um, <laughs> I think that the chief, whatever, whatever is, uh, was ever in his mind, um, I think he's in a situation where the timing of events uh, suggests um, that political considerations entered into uh, his decision. I mean, the reporting is that uh, he voted uh, to, to invalidate the mandated conference, uh, which means we actually won everything at conference, um, and then he sometime later switched his vote. That's what the reporting has been, uh, cbsnews.com, uh, Jan Roberts. Uh, so, uh, Jan Crawford, sorry. Uh, so uh, that's what we, that's one piece of information that we have. So the question is why would he have done that? And we do know that a sustained political campaign was, was leveled at the court after the case was submitted, after we finished closing argument. I certainly expected to get a lot of work done once the case was submitted on other matters. I didn't expect that there would be a full-throated publicity campaign mounted against the court beginning on the Monday following the, uh, the oral argument by the President of the United States, culminating um, in a floor speech by the Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Pat Leahy 
encouraging, cajoling, and criticizing the court for doing anything other than upholding the president's signature legislation. And, he was, and they were joined in this course in the interim by every liberal pundit and by, most liberal, by many liberal law professors who were uh, opining in, in, on, online. Uh, so there was a sustained campaign. It was only after that sustained campaign that uh, supposedly, at least according to reporting, the Chief Justice switched his vote. Now, if the reasons that were offered uh, to him for why he ought to switch his vote, because some of these co comments focused specifically on him, um, was that he should do so to uphold the legitimacy of the court and protect the legitimacy of the court. It's sort of like a nice little Supreme Court legacy you've got here. Too bad if something were to happen to it. Um, the, if, if, that's what, if that's, that was the argument being made to him in public, there is at least some reason to believe, given the timing of the events, that he responded to that argument and that he was concerned about the legacy of the court and was concerned about his own legacy. If that's true, those are political considerations. They're not legal considerations. And I hear my colleagues uh, talk about how that's a perfectly appropriate thing for the justices to do. Um, so they're not embarrassed about that. So I don't know the why we need to be embarrassed by saying that that might well have motivated a switch if a switch happened. So do we know what was in uh, Chief Justice Roberts' mind? Of course we don't. Um, only he knows that. Uh, but that's what the timing of the objective events suggests. Um, and that's all we can judge by. David, anything else? No, I, I think it's, you know, it's, it's, it's right. I mean, the explanations fluctuate between the institutional legitimacy and, and, and personal reputation. I think we can all agree, but we don't, we'll never know for sure unless, uh, you know, he writes memoir some days, which was the the key factor, but the important thing that whatever explanation uh, is there is not legitimate because we all agree that it is not a good thing for justices, chief justices or judges to act politically, to try to split the difference, to try to uh, uh, you know, balance the competing imperatives. And this takes me back to my fig leaf federalism point because of course these types of political uh, and institutional pressures only arise in the really really, really important cases, and we can be sure, precisely because of how things unfolded, and you know, Randy described it briefly, uh, that the similar campaign of intimidation would obtain uh, uh, in the future cases when that much is in stake. And of course, back to, I love the point about you uh, referencing or paraphrasing famous statement by Secretary Rumsfeld, uh, of course, it would be more difficult to pressure a court if we had, instead of a, you know, precarious 5-4, we had 7-2, uh, it may be a different different result. But in, in any instance, it's it's unfortunate if you take Article 3 seriously, as, as I do. Let, let me just say a word about that. Uh, there's an article to be written, Chief Justice Roberts, colon, Statesman or Schlemiel, and with a question mark. And I think that's a fair question, right? Is that he sees himself as being a statesman for the reason, whether political or otherwise, and saving the court from uh, confronting the political branches. This, this is uh, not a new point, it's uh, a historical point. Uh, we faced this in the Casey case on abortion in 1992, where the, the, the uh, Troika opinion, that included Justice Kennedy, uh, resisted overturning uh, Roe v. Wade on grounds that that, that would be uh, highly charged and politically uh, unwise. I think that the short-term answer to the, on the Chief Justice's own terms is that it's been successful. The, 
the uh, accord is not a subject of uh, the political campaign at this point. Uh, it has depoliticized itself in this way. A lot of grousing by people oppose it, but also it's just out of the, out of the, the crossfire between uh, President Obama and, and Governor Romney. Now, the real test is not the short term, but the long term. And the, the, the issue will be whether he's a statesman is to see if, as I suspect, I don't predict these things, but as I suspect, in the Texas racial preference case that's going to be discussed this afternoon, if the court strikes down the preference in uh, Texas, whether uh, people respect it as a judicial decision or try to delegitimize that issue, uh, or the same with same-sex marriage or some of these other controversial issues that come up, come along. If the court deals with those questions in ways that are not popular in certain sections of the uh, academy and of the population, whether those decisions will be deferred to on grounds that they're legal decisions and not political decisions. If, if that happens, then I think uh, the Chief Justice will have been a statesman. If that doesn't happen, as I suspect it won't, then it looks like he'll be a Schlemiel. Let me just add a 10-second point. If you look at it from a standpoint of sweep of history, uh, what's depressing to me is that he did it and the court did it at the time where its maturity and institutional legitimacy is pretty well established. There are many other instances, and I'm not going to talk about the New Deal and the switch in time, but if you look at the very dawn of our constitutional history, I would say that the a certain other chief justice was under much greater pressure in Marbury versus Madison, and if you look at what he did uh, relative to it, enunciating the right of judicial review while finding a jurisdictional reason not to give uh, Mr. Marbury his commission was far more commendable. So this was the time to be bold. This was not the time to trim sails, courtesy of all of Chief Justice's predecessors. And and he did it at a time when the legislation is tremendously unpopular, and even a majority of Democrats thought at least the individual mandate was unconstitutional. The, just the, the calculus here. Anyway, you have my thoughts in your uh, in the introduction to this uh, to this book. But I uh, I want to emphasize something that Randy said in his opening remarks, uh, and that is not about the political strategy and what have you, but uh, the the judicial philosophy. Uh, the morning after the decision, I wrote an op-ed called uh, "John Roberts, Conservative Pacifist." People talk about liberal judicial activism, you know, not seeing any limits on federal power and, and, and so forth. Well, uh, this is the chickens coming home to roost of the conservative reaction to some of those liberal excesses in the 60s and 70s. Uh, throwing out, again, whatever strategic vision, legitimacy, thinking, all of that, but just the view that courts should be deferential and restrained in that way. I mean, it, it's, it's bizarre. Uh, it seems to me that the role of judges, why we want them to have this institutional uh, integrity, gravitas, and what have you, so they can make these hard calls uh, and let the political chips fall where they may. So that's what's really frustrating uh, to me and why, you know, this is much more frustrating. I still am working through my stages of, I think I'm, I'm still at the reckoning stage or what have you. Uh, you know, and it's much more difficult than simply had Kennedy gone over and joined the liberals and, you know, we'd have an expansive commerce, you know, no limits. That, that would have been terrible in terms of the Constitution, but this is harder to deal with because uh, you know, as Randy said, we, we, we won at the conference, and, and then he decided that a judge's, judge was, a judge's job was not to judge. Um, anyway, I have some thoughts. <laughs> and this will be the last question. Um, hi, my name's Anna Gorish, and I'm actually a graduate of Georgetown and had Professor Barnett. Um, and uh, one of the ways I looked at Justice Roberts' opinion was possibly sort of like a you break it, you buy it. 
And um, I wonder, because the bill seems extraordinarily messy, and I know that this isn't quite a constitutional analysis, but I wonder if you could speak at all to how you think this is going to begin to play out. I mean, it seems like already there are provisions that are falling apart that they're having to step back on. And I just wonder what you think might happen in the future as this is implemented in 2014 after the election, I guess, but just as it starts to. I mean, this bill is a disaster for the country. It's a disaster. It, forget the fact that it doesn't, it has all these crazy parts that don't work very well. If it works, it's terrible for the country. The whole goal of this is to uh, 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 take all the private insurance companies and turn them into regulated public utilities so that we essentially have single payer administered by private companies so they can get to, they can get their share of the, of the, they get their cut of the action. And that's what this whole thing is about. Um, uh, I, I'm not sure it was ever designed to work properly. So it really means that uh, if, uh, uh, if the election doesn't go the right way with respect to Obamacare, uh, which is only a couple months away, uh, we're in for a very bad time. Um, and uh, the country's in for a very bad time. And it's an open question as to how much of the United States that we know will survive another four years if Obamacare stays intact, in which it will, unless the election goes a certain way. And the election's very close right now. Um, so uh, I don't think any of us can predict what the future will be unless you tell us how November is going to go. Uh, and I hate to be someone who, is so, who has an opinion so dependent on the political outcome because I always take a long-run view and realize that there's always a long run and there's things that come and go and, you know, this too shall pass sort of an attitude. But I have to think, I have to say that regardless of that, this would be a cataclysm. Um, if this bill is not repealed, and that alone is enough to decide uh, uh, what outcome you want to see from this uh, November's election. Let me just mention very briefly, there's one interesting vulnerability that has surfaced, uh, would not be really mature as far as ripeness goes for a little while, but uh, some folks have noticed that the way the, both the, pen, the employee penalty provision and the subsidy provision is written, it, it's triggered if you fail as an employer, for example, to provide coverage that is among coverage that qualifies in a particular state or on exchange. And the same is true relative to your subsidies. Since a number of states, courtesy of the Medicaid decision that Professor Bloomstein was talking, portion of a decision talking about, are going to opt out, and a bunch of states are not going to run their own exchanges. If uh, federally run exchanges, the argument is in all those states, all the employers can drop people and pay no penalty, and nobody would be able to get a uh, to get a subsidy, which they otherwise qualify. You'd need to wait until 2014 to do that. But this actually is a statutory matter. There's no constitutional significance. As a statutory matter, is a very compelling argument. That's how it's written because it's badly written. If this thing pans out, then uh, the irony here would be this: that this statute that was meant to increase coverage is going to lead to tremendous decrease in coverage because. Uh, that's what's going to happen. So that's the next, not, not as exciting as the constitutional issues that three of us have been kicking around, but a very interesting uh, litigation yet to come. Yeah, yeah I, think that, I think that David is right about that. Uh, Michael Cannon from uh, Cato here and Jonathan Adler, who will be on the program this afternoon, have written a very comprehensive paper on this point. It's an issue I've been involved with. I testified last week for Ways and Means Committee on this question. And David is right. I think that, that there's a serious issue. IRS, I think, has exceeded its authority right. in this regard. And, uh, you know, there's an, a, another theory about how, how law reform works, is that frontal assaults are much more difficult. QED, Roe v. Wade, uh, the frontal assault strategy has not been successful. I think uh, a, uh, what I like to call a termite approach uh, tends to be more successful, where you, you 
you uh, develop weaknesses in the foundational structure of things. And I think the desegregation litigation in the early part of the 20th century is a good example of that leading up to and culminating in Brown. By the time Brown was decided, the legal infrastructure of separate but equal had been pretty much eaten away by the t legal termites. And uh, Brown just basically huffed and puffed and blew it down. There was not much left. And I think that that is uh, going to be the strategy that will develop if the president is reelected or if there's not a majority Republican in the Senate. I think the law will stay, but it will become a little bit of a Potemkin village at that point through these various challenges, which don't have the visibility and yet have the substance behind them. I think the IRS has really overreached here. Let's thank our panel.